Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Zane Ash, sitting in for Julia Chatsley, and here is what you need to know. Disney's debut, Streaming Wars, moved to a new level as the concert juggernaut enters the space. And out of gas, Nissan profits dropped a shocking 70% in the last quarter, and long hair don't care. WeWork might be replacing CEO Adam Newman with T-Mobile CEO John Legere. It is Tuesday, my friends, and this is First Move. All right, welcome to First Move, everyone. So good to have you with us. There is so much to get to this hour. Of course, I want to begin with a check of the markets here in the United States. Let's see what futures are doing now. Futures look to be pointing to a mostly flat open uh, for stock. The Dow begins today's session in record territory yet again, but the S&P and the Nasdaq fell from record highs yesterday. The big event for investors today could be President Trump's speech at the Economic Club of New York. Traders are hoping to get an update on the U.S.-China trade war negotiations, and Trump could also announce his decision on whether to slap tariffs on European auto imports ahead of tomorrow's deadline. Reports say he will delay imposing those tariffs for another six months. In the meantime, in Europe, all the major stock indices are trading higher at this hour. Uh, Asian stocks closed higher too. Hong Kong stocks rose half of a percent, gaining back some of the losses they suffered on Monday after violent demonstrations there. All right, let's get to our main story now. The House of Mouse has entered the streaming wars and it's relying on a pipeline of Disney magic to put it ahead of the pack. Frank Plodder joins us live now. So, uh, Frank, Disney certainly does have a very impressive catalogue when it comes to movies, certainly no denying that. But will that be enough to move the needle when it comes to market share against Netflix? I mean, they are coming in with some of the most popular brands of all time. But the big question is, is this going to be something that you're going to need to replace Netflix or is it a companion to it? Right now, it looks like it's a great companion to the other streaming services, everything from Netflix to CNN Parent Company's upcoming HBO Max, because this is really skewed towards families and the young and the young at heart. Now, mind you, you get Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic all 600 episodes of The Simpsons. That's a huge roster of brands and programming. But the question really is, is this something that you're really going to want to turn on when you come home at night? Or is it more kind of like this event type television? Disney's hoping it's the former. So now, just in terms of how Netflix responds, what changes will we see from Netflix as a result of Disney's move here? I think Netflix keeps doing what it's been doing. It has a hundred. It has a nearly 160 million subscriber head start. It is said that it welcomes the competition because its idea is that this whole kind of streaming war that is going on, you see on the, the screen right now, all these different prices. 
for all these different services, both upcoming and just launched. Basically, what for Netflix, they think that all of these services are not going to destroy Netflix or each other. They're going to eat into the linear bundle, the cable bundle as we've come to know it. And it basically, think of it this way, a rising tide lifts all boats. So Netflix feels it not only has years of experience, it also has a huge head start globally in terms of subscribers. So it's not really that worried. I doubt it really changes much of what it's doing, but it will keep an eye on Disney because it's hard not to. And I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, the cable industry. What changes will we see from the cable business as a result of several new players in the streaming game? I mean, the cable business, you're seeing it right now. You're seeing it today. The cable business is quickly becoming the streaming business. Disney, for a very long time, was defined by ESPN and the amount of subscribers that ESPN had. Every time that went down... People kind of on Wall Street a little, went a little bit crazy. Now they're shifting their business focus to the whole new world of streaming. you got to remember, this is a company that built its empire on things like ESPN, theme parks, movies, and Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse plush dolls. Now they're hoping that the future of this business is going to be Disney Plus, and today is the first day of that future. All right, Frank Pallotta, live for us there. Thank you so much. Japanese car giant Nissan is trying to pull out of a crisis, but the latest figures show that that crisis is only getting worse. The disastrous last quarter seeing profit plunge by 70%, and it's warning that profits and sales uh, for the full year are slumping as well. Sharice found joins us live now. So Sharice, you know, part of the problem here is just what car sales around the world are experiencing globally, and also you have several management upheavals at Nissan. Just walk us through the results today. Nissan is really struggling to move on from the dramatic ouster of Carlos Ghosn, which happened late last year, right, Zane? We've seen a company that has been in turmoil for the better part of a year. Not only, like you mentioned, we've got a worse than expected uh, global economy slowdown that has affected car sales worldwide. They've also been hit by a stronger yen, and they've also been hit by stricter environmental regulations, especially in Europe. All of that combining to uh, Nissan reporting some of its worst profits. But interestingly enough, it was rock bottom, as they said a couple quarters ago. Uh, The previous quarter, Nissan recorded a 99% drop in operating profits. So this quarter of a 70% drop from that perspective is a little bit of an improvement. But again, Nissan really struggling to move on and draw a line under the scandals and trying to present a new face and a new management team, right? And I think one of the things that was really emblematic of how this company is really trying to turn things around, you see it on your screen right there, Stephen Ma, He is the incoming chief financial officer. He was the one presenting earnings today because the CEO is not yet in place. The second CEO that they've had in two years, Zane. All right. uh, Sharice Pham, live for us there. Thank you so much. Outgoing BP CEO Bob Dudley says the world needs natural gas to solve the planet's energy problems and to suggest otherwise is irresponsible. Dudley, who is stepping down in February, also described how he fought to save BP after the Deepwater Horizon spill nine years ago. John Defterios joins us uh, live now. So what else did Bob Dudley say when it comes to uh, the energy transition that the world is experiencing and also how, how things will be disrupted? 
Well, you know, uh, Zane, he doesn't uh, mince words. He's a pretty straight talker, but I would say even more so now in his final three months as chief executive officer. But overall, both Dudley and the other CEOs I spoke to acknowledged the energy transition. We even had the prime minister of the UAE and the ruler of Dubai come and visit because of this major move into renewables and the role of oil and gas going forward. But according to Dudley, there's a danger of dumping all the hydrocarbons in one bucket, if you will, oil, gas, and coal. He thinks that's a drastic mistake. Uh, they're also going heavily into U.S. shale as an investor. Here's his view on natural gas and its role in that energy transition. As the world turns its back on nuclear, we need lots and lots of renewables, but natural gas has got to play a huge role in this. And that's why I've seen some very, very intelligent people talking about how we have to stop natural gas. I think it's irresponsible, really. Michael Bloomberg did so in a speech. Elizabeth Warren's campaigning on shutting down shale in the United States. Is it getting too political and we're losing sight of the end goal? Well, I think that does sound very, very political to me because we just simply cannot get there. Now, we do need to take methane, detect it, keep it, keep it from flaring, keep it from leaking, and we'll do that. The technologies are rolling through really, really fast with satellites and drones. We'll be able to do that. Put that technology solution aside, and it's there. Natural gas has half the CO2 emissions as coal. And there's a coal-fired power plant being built once a week in eight countries in the world. You came into the position of CEO during Deepwater Horizon. What's the biggest thing you learned yourself as a leader? And then how has BP changed after the biggest test you could ever imagine? Well, that was an event that was a tragic accident that uh, shook the company to its core. And uh, at one point, almost we almost didn't make it. You know, financially, it was very close, touch and go. So how do you deal with something like that? I think you try to stay calm, have a, have a group of people around you, stay calm, absolutely dedicated, meeting the commitments. We didn't run away from it. The total cost of the bill of that is up over $68 billion today. It just keep a team, keep the engineering going just step by step, one foot forward in front of the other to, uh, to move through it. And you have to have a lot of patience and perseverance and a really committed team working on it. Bob Dudley, uh, the outgoing CEO, is going to step down in February of 2020. Another theme that emerged here, though, Zane, at Adepec uh, 2019, is the idea from the emerging markets, particularly in Africa, saying there's Western colonialism and their view on the energy transition, not to invest in oil and gas. So they said, if you're not going to fund us in hydrocarbons, then you have to come up with funding for us to make a quicker transition with the use of natural gas. It's a very intense debate and a changing narrative this year, clearly over last year. So given the changes, John, and, and just sort of the headwinds for the sector, what's the biggest concern that the people have now? You know, it's interesting that you say that because you would think it would be energy security in the attack that we saw on Saudi Aramco September 14th. That's still in the back of their minds. But all the CEOs I spoke to and some of the ministers are on the ground, they want the cloud to list over the U.S.-China trade dispute. I know that the president's going to be speaking at the New York Club on this. Uh, it is important, but it's holding back demand. And as the CEO of Annie told me uh, of Italy, it's the volatility of demand. You can't plan on investments if you don't know if the demand is going to be consistent. And it's the 10th year of the economic recovery next year. And there are concerns whether demand and economic growth can indeed hold up, Zane. All right, John Deterrios, live for us there. Thank you so much.
Okay, so these are the stories making headlines around the world. Palestinian militants have fired dozens of rockets into Israel, forcing authorities in some cities, including Tel Aviv, to close schools and businesses. The strikes come after the Israeli Defense Forces killed a commander of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. He was targeted in an airstrike on the Gaza Strip this morning. Let's bring in Oren Liebman, uh, who is uh, joining us live now. So, uh, Oren, just walk us through this. We know that the IDF killed a commander of the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad, and, and that, that group vowed retaliation. Set the scene for us. This all starts, as you point out, early this morning, about 4 o'clock in the morning, when the Israeli military carried out a targeted assassination against Palestinian Islamic Jihad leader Baha Abu al-Atta. They say he was responsible for planning and carrying out attacks, including some in the immediate future. They also say he was responsible for some of the rockets attacks, the most isolated uh, rocket launches we've seen over the course of the past few months from Gaza into Israel. It is for that that they say they carried out this targeted killing against Baha Abu al-Atta. That triggered a response. At this point, more than 100 rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel, some of them reaching some 50 miles away or so, as far as Tel Aviv and beyond, as well as into central and southern Israel. Because of that, Israel has ordered schools canceled for the day and non-essential work as well canceled. In addition, we just got a statement from the Ministry of Defense saying that for the next 48 hours, unless canceled earlier, there will be a special, essentially, security situation up to 50 miles away from Gaza. So that indicates this isn't over yet. As of this point, and we just heard a loud explosion behind us, you can see there a plume of smoke. I don't know which way that fire was coming, but a loud explosion, a plume of smoke, a strong indication that this isn't over yet. And the nighttime as evening approaches is certainly a chance for escalation here. As of this point, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, and there are another explosion and another explosion, three so far in the last few seconds here. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says four Palestinians have been killed in Gaza as well as others injured. There have been several injured in Israel as well. Where does this go from here? Well, it certainly isn't over, and those plumes of smoke seem a pretty obvious explanation of that. Where does it go from here? At this point, this is a fight between Israel and Islamic Jihad. Hamas has not entered the picture yet. And that may lead to a way to contain this. But if Hamas enters the pictures, enters the scenario here, this could go uh, to a, a severe escalation here. And nothing is off the table anywhere from de-escalation to this spiraling into a much larger fight, even a war. As we see and hear more explanations, we are going to pack up and get moving. All right. Uh uh, um, Oral do stay safe. As you mentioned, you're going to pack up and get moving. Do stay safe. Thank you so much for being with us. Just incredible there, Oral Lieberman, on uh, the escalation intentions uh, where he is right now. All right, officials in Australia fear fires ravaging the East Coast it will take at least several more days to contain homes have been destroyed and capital Sydney is surrounded in smoke as dry and windy conditions hamper firefighters' efforts. Protesters and riot police are facing off once again in Hong Kong, but compared to the violence on Monday, the streets appear to be relatively calm. Police have arrested a man who they say shot, who they shot yesterday for unlawful assembly and attempted robbery. Hospitals officials say that he is in critical condition. All right, still to come here on First Move, WeWork eyes T-Mobile CEO. We ask what SoftBank has to do with it. And Hide the likes. Instagram tries a new policy that won't be getting hot from influencers. That's next.
Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Zane Asher, where futures continue to point to a mostly flat open for U.S. stocks. Uh, stocks could actually trade in a relatively narrow range until President Trump delivers his speech on the economy uh, about three hours from now. Traders are hoping to get an update on U.S.-China trade talks. A new survey by Bank of America could be bullish, a bullish sign for stocks. It said fund managers are making big moves from cash to stocks with global equity allocations at their highest levels in a year. Meantime, the bond market is up and running again after Monday's Veterans Day observances. Yields are ticking lower, but the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury is still sitting at nearly three months highs. Joining me live now is Tony Krasinski, he's the executive vice president and market uh, market strategist at PIMCO. Thank you for being Good with morning, us. Thanks for having okay, so let's just talk about stocks before we get to bonds. Um, we have seen this sort of week of record highs in the stock market. What would you say was on the horizon right now that could really put a dent in that? Well, a lot of the rally has been because of this reduction in policy uncertainty. But policy uncertainty remains very high on many fronts. And even if there's a trade agreement with China, it won't get rid of the underlying hostilities. In other words, there'll be tensions with China probably for many years to come because there really is a big power struggle that's military, geopolitical, economic. So now and then investors will begin to worry about that. But for sure, the policy uncertainty related to China is down a bit. Um, one, one thing investors don't have to start thinking about is the rise in interest rates going to disrupt the stock market? Mm. And our answer to that is no. No. So despite the fact that we're seeing these three-month highs in the 10-year, you don't think that's going to put a dent in the stock market? No. If the stock market is going to weaken, it's more likely to come from uh, fears of a recession, mm -hmm. which we think won't occur. Uh, yields probably stay low globally. In fact, for Europe, the highest level that PIMCO expects the, the European Central Bank to put its policy rate at any time in the next five years is zero. For Japan, also zero over the next five years. The U.S. probably stay in the current zone. Yields on the U.S. 10-year today are probably in what we would call fair value zone. They kind of roughly represent where the U.S. policy rate is likely to stay for a little while, one and a half to one three quarters percent, with some downward bias. And so if the stock market is to be interrupted, it's more likely to be from something on the economy. Uh, and that would have to come from some policy-related issue more than likely at this point. Um, do you anticipate a Fed rate cut early next year? We think there's a reasonable chance of an additional rate cut, but the odds of a cut at the December meeting uh, is probably a little low because the Federal Reserve has indicated, especially through the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, that it would take a material change in the outlook, their words, uh, for the Fed to consider any interest rate change, up or down. But the economy in the U.S. probably slips a bit in the first quarter due to lagged impact of uh, uncertain policy uncertainty and the higher interest rates that we used to have. And that may prompt the Fed to say, well, let's give another uh, policy insurance to the markets. But uh, we wouldn't uh, suggest that the rate change odds matter much to investors. Uh, if there's another rate cut or not, it probably really won't change the overall picture for investing in credit instruments, real estate, equities, private equity, quarter point and yields isn't a lot in the in the broader scheme of things. And when you think about just the political headwinds, I mean, obviously we've got public impeachment hearings coming up from tomorrow onwards. Um, is why isn't the market looking at that? Why why isn't the market being affected by that? Well, it's another dollop in the heap of policy uncertainty, and it is a 
big issue, but it's, and this is from someone who, me, who was alive when he's, uh, during the Nixon period, okay. I remember in class being asked about it. Um, so we've seen three impeachment hearings um, since the 70s. It's not as if the markets are now used to it, but it recognizes that the, the that capitalism, democracy, these are the things that last and that one individual, while exceedingly important, mm -hmm. won't disrupt the capitalist dynamic mm -hmm. that shapes the movement of financial markets. When you think about just how much the conversation has shifted in the last three months, I mean, the three months ago, everyone was talking about inverted yield curves and fear that there could be a recession in 12 to 18 months from then. Um, that's really changed. You don't really sort of hear that word recession thrown around as frequently. Right. Because, uh, go ahead. Well, just thinking about the stock market and its gains, when it moves almost 5%, uh, given that it's valued in 40 plus trillion dollars, it's a meaningful amount of change in wealth. Now, consumers don't necessarily spend the two trillion or so increase in wealth, of several trillion when looked over a broader period of time. Uh, they spend a percentage of that. What percent tends to be three to five percent. So some of the reduction in fear about recession reflects the fact that stock market has increased in value. There'll be some sort of wealth effect. It at least makes people feel better. And it's very important in the U.S. financial system, the global system, that there be a leap of faith because the world is indebted, nations are, households are, companies are. So it always takes a leap of faith for people to go out each day and say, yes, I'll invest in that company, that country, mm. this product, this plant, this equipment. Mm. And so the leap of faith is being made again uh, because of policy and sort of being, being down a little bit. Right, Tony, live for us there. Thank you so, Thanks much. so much. Appreciate it. Okay, so the CEO of T-Mobile is in talks for the top job at WeWork, the move uh, would come at a crucial time for the wireless carrier. John Leger is currently overseeing T-Mobile's merger with Sprint. Let's bring in Claire Sebastian, who joins us live now. Uh, so Claire, what is it about John Leger's uh, record at T-Mobile that would make him an attractive candidate for WeWork? Well, he's one of the most colorful CEOs out there, Zane. Literally and figuratively, he's known for not only living and breathing the T-Mobile brand, but also wearing it. He's never really seen without the, the signature magenta. But it's not just his colorful style. Uh, it's his, his record when it comes to turning around T-Mobile. He's made it uh, in the past seven years, the fastest growing mobile carrier uh, in the U.S. He, the stock is up some 600% uh, since he started. He's got this irreverent style, which may be uh, attractive to WeWork, which, of course, still probably sees itself as something of a maverick, despite its, its botched IPO and now rescued by its parent, SoftBank. And that brings me on to the final point, which is the SoftBank connection. Uh, T-Mobile CEO John Leger has been in talks with, with SoftBank, which is, of course, the majority owner of Sprint, about that merger, which has yet to be finalized. Uh, SoftBank is also now the, uh, the majority owner of WeWork, and the same chairman runs the two companies. Marcelo Claret. They have a, a history. Those two, Marcelo Claret, famously called John Leger a con artist uh, on Twitter in 2016. But clearly, he is the man pulling the strings here. But he is only one of a few candidates who are in talks, according to a source familiar with the matter. So nothing guaranteed as of yet, Zane. So for the next CEO of WeWork, what would they have to do just in terms of coming up with this clear strategy to turn that company's fortunes around? Well, I think they'll definitely be running a smaller, slower growing company. That was clearly the problem uh, with WeWork is that they had so much funding and so much ambition that they grew faster than their profits 
could catch up. But I think if you look at what John uh, Leger has done at T-Mobile, he really rebranded the company. He called it the Uncarrier. He, he took on his rivals. He continues to do that. I think we can show you a clip uh, where he, he was recently trolling AT&T uh, and Verizon on Twitter, carving himself uh, in, a, in a pumpkin and accusing them uh, of price gouging while doing that. But look, he rebranded uh, T-Mobile. It seems to have worked. Uh, and I think that's what's, what, what the next WeWork CEO will need to do, come out fighting, but, but with a different kind of perspective. All right, Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. You are watching First Move. The opening bell is right after this short break. Don't go away. was the opening bell here on Wall Street on this Tuesday. Uh, as expected, we are probably going to begin the session with a mostly flat open. There you have it. Dow Jones is only up about 16 points, so pretty much flat, despite all the sort of records uh, we've seen. All the major averages remain close to record highs right now as traders await President Trump's speech today at the Economic Club of New York. Fed Chair Jerome Powell begins two days of closely watched testimony on the economy tomorrow on Capitol Hill. It is pretty quiet just in terms of earnings, but all that will change later in the week when major U.S. retailers will begin reporting their results. Walmart is out with earnings on Thursday. JCPenney, Friday, uh, we get uh, our latest look on retail sales in the U.S. as well. Time for a look now at some of our global movers. Shares of Rockwell Automation are rallying. The manufacturing giant is reporting better than expected earnings and profits. It sees double-digit growth in its key information services business. Shares of meat processing giant Tyson Foods are also higher as well, up about uh, two and a quarter percent. The company's fourth quarter sales and earnings missed expectations, thanks in part to a more than four percent drop in beef sales. Boeing shares are trading just a little bit uh, lower down about a third of one percent. Um, but Boeing shares actually rose more than four percent on Monday after the company said it hopes to begin flying the 737 MAX again in January. It says deliveries could begin again next month and shares of Kraft Brew Alliance are soaring. Anheuser-Busch had a 31 stake, 31 percent stake in the beer conglomerate. It is buying up the rest of the company in a deal worth some $16 a share, more than double Monday's closing price. Disney invented happily ever after, and now it staked its own dream, ending on winning the streaming wars. Disney Plus launched in three countries today in a move it hopes will net 90 million subscribers over the next five years. Joining me live now is Tuno Amobi. He's a senior analyst at CFRA. His company has a buy rating on Disney, and he also covers Netflix and Amazon. Tuna, thank you so much for being with us. So. Just in terms of Disney launching today, how do you think that's going to disrupt the streaming sector? You know, you know Zane, i got to tell you, there's a lot of excitement um, in the air. Uh, there's a lot of expectations. This has been highly anticipated. Um, so I think Disney's launch today is going to take the streaming war to a whole new level. The company is all in. They're investing heavily. They've got a huge trove of content, um, more so than anyone else, I would argue. Um, they're launching in three countries today. Uh, they're going to have a quick international rollout, rollout pretty soon. 
and expectations are pretty sky high. Pricing is very aggressive. Investors are, you know, fingers crossed. You know, content is one thing and it's, it's hugely important for sure, but it's not everything when it comes to uh, winning the streaming wars. Netflix already has such a large footprint. I mean, what is the marketing strategy to win people over? Oh, you know, talk about marketing. You couldn't miss, you know, Disney, um, you know, plus um, anywhere, you know, Monday Night Football yesterday, they had a blitz um, on radio, all platforms online, all of the affiliated Disney, um, you know, uh, properties are going to be marketing this heavily. Um, and that's to be expected. I think the awareness should be built in up front. Um, you know, I think as I look out over the next uh, four to five years, it seems to me that the estimate for 60 to 90 million uh, subscribers is quite, uh, could be conservative when you consider mm. uh, the impressive array of distribution partners. Mm. If you have a Verizon customer, you're actually giving it to you uh, a year for, for free. So that's a way to lock in the mobile customers. Yes, uh, that partnership with Verizon, right, right, right. That's right. And you got other partners like Google, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Roku, Samsung, LG. All of these guys are on board with the launch. So, so what do you make of the price? $6.99. Extremely aggressive. Mm -hmm. How will it change the landscape having a price like that for a major competitor? You know, that price, I got to tell you, really, um, you know, ratcheted up the price competition that we see out there in the streaming. Apple, as you're aware, just a couple of weeks ago came to uh, try to undercut that at $4.99. Um, HBO Max coming at 15, but I think more importantly, what Disney is trying to do is to, um, you know, come out with a bang, right? And remember, they are also offering Disney Plus as part of a bundle with Hulu and ESPN for 12.99. Mm -hmm. So that is even a more com compelling proposition when you think about all the different kinds of content that's available from Meantime, Disney. Netflix recently raised prices. That's right. Uh, Netflix is 12.99, which is almost double what Disney is offering. And think about Disney coming out on day one today with about 500 movies, mm -hmm. 7,500 TV episodes, 12 original shows, including The Mandalorian, which is exclusive on the Disney Plus platform. And that number will ramp up very significantly in the next few years. When you think about it, I think that it's important for people to remember that when it comes to streaming, it's not like television where you watch one show at a time. When it comes to streaming, there's room for multiple winners in the sector to coexist, as in somebody could have a Netflix subscription and at the same time for their children have a Disney subscription as well. So that's an important dynamic to remember as well. That's a great point, uh, Zane. And a lot of investors think that this is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. it, it's not. And while the uh, core TV universe is uh, actually uh, decelerating, the curve cutting, uh, the more and more people are signing up to these cheaper um, over-the-top video alternatives, which are significantly less expensive, and to your point, allowing consumers to sign up to uh, multiple subscriptions, not necessarily as a substitute, in some cases complementary to the traditional TV, which they're already paying, but a lot of the younger consumers are actually going all into streaming mm -hmm. and just picking and choosing uh, the whole a la carte argument, uh, pick and choose the streaming offerings that you want, which is really where the industry is headed to. So on the other side of the coin, what does Netflix? Netflix sees Disney launch today and thinks, what in terms of how they're going to step up their game we also cover netflix and we have a buy you know our thesis in is that this streaming landscape is uh, just in the early innings it's just getting started mm -hmm. you know the secular trends that we see are favoring the migration from traditional television to internet television and netflix i would argue will be one of the potential winners remember they have the first mover advantage as we look at the next several years the streaming war 
uh, is actually playing out on various fronts. Netflix is in the subscription uh, video on demand space. Uh, some others are focused on advertising supported. Others are in sports, news, etc. Netflix is obviously on demand as opposed to live entertainment. So we think Netflix really has a pretty good chance. But the dis- you see the disruptor has to guard against being disrupted. disrupted. You know, um, Netflix obviously famous for disrupting blockbuster video. How can it guard against being disrupted itself? Netflix is in handwriting on the wall for quite some time. They have significantly ratcheted up their spending on original content. Um, this year, we estimate they're spending uh, north of $15 billion in cash spending just on content. That number will increase 20% next year. Um, so I think what they've seen coming is that a lot of studios are pulling off of their shows on Netflix. Disney's already made that decision, um, starting with Captain Marvel. Um, you know, NBC and all the guys, The Office, Friends are all coming off of, um, you know, Netflix is going to have to invest in original programming. So what that means is that they are, uh, you know, kind of preparing uh, for what will likely be uh, a significant level of competition from the likes of Disney and HBO and, and, and Comcast, by the way, launching their own Peacock. So I think Netflix uh, really is in a good position to uh, kind of eke out a niche for itself as the streaming war continues to unfold. And as the streaming war continues to unfold, as you say, um, what will it mean for the cable business? Um, you know, Zane, so the secular trend affecting the cable business and the pay TV market for that matter, including the satellites, that we've seen a deceleration uh, of, uh, of pay TV subscribers. That's been going on for over a decade now, just accelerated in the last few years. So that phenomenon, which is called cut cutting, mm-hmm. uh, and in some cases, cut nevers for the younger generation <laughs> yeah, that never really sign up for that. So that is happening as the streaming war continues to uh, unfold and more of these subscribers are moving on to streaming. The secular trends uh, are favoring the streaming. And when you consider broadband penetration in the US north of 88%, in a lot of the international markets, broadband penetration is actually way too low. So that kind of gives you the idea of the potential upside that a lot of these streaming uh, you know, outfits are gonna get from international markets. Tuna, thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. All right, after the break here on First Move, as violence worsens in Hong Kong, we hear from a pro-democracy union confederation on what can be done to break the standoff between police and protesters. Right, riot police are again on the streets of Hong Kong. You are looking at live pics uh, from Hong Kong where it's just gone at 10.45 in the evening. They fired tear gas early on Tuesday as protesters tried to block roads with makeshift barricades. Some universities and schools are closed and five months of repeated protests have hammered the economy of this Asian financial hub. The latest figures confirmed it's now in recession. Output shrank 3.2% in the third quarter. Exports were down more than 7% compared to a year ago and tourist numbers were down a massive 37%. I'm joined by... Lee Chuk Yang, the General Secretary of the Hong Kong Federation, Confederation of Trade Unions, which is uh, taking a pro-democracy stance. So thank you so much for being with us. So Hong Kong now in recession. Obviously, there's, there's sort of no end in sight when it comes to violence between uh, police and demonstrators. Just what sort of long-term effect do you think this will have on, on the economy there? Uh, of course, on the short term already, the economy, the economy is going down. But I think on the long term, Everything is about confidence. And one thing is very uh, sort of um, um, 
uh, a problem is that this government, who used to be very, very sensitive to business confidence, they don't really care now. You know, they are trying to uh, uh, get the police out, completely out of control, invading the university now, at, the, at this moment, and then rounds and rounds tear gas, live real bullets, you know, on point blank, shooting and the protester injuring three uh, protester already and one uh, mysterious death during one of the clamp down on one of the housing estate. You know, the, the problem with uh, the situation now is that it seems that the government who used to be very sensitive to business government well, really don't care and want to just uh, suppress uh, the protest. And when there's some de-escalation on the part of protesters, they try to, you know, they try to do something very uh, uh, hor- horrible and, and outrageous to really enrage the people. For example, uh, when there's some de-escalation, uh, then suddenly they put out the, uh, uh, the anti-mask ban uh, with the immersion regulation and, and then enraging people and then they, they you know, uh, shoot at the uh, protester. So they are really completely under control. And the question now is, why this government uh, really don't care about the economy and just want to clamp down, suppress? Uh, is, it, is the Chinese Communist Party behind that uh, they want to unleash the police on the protester? If we don't solve this problem, the political will on the part of the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government to really calm down the situation, you know, uh, we don't see any uh, solution uh, uh, in the short term or long term unless there's a political will. So the problem is, why are they so much of uh, unleashing the police uh, uh, violence out and the brutality ever escalating against the protester? What would you say, I mean, we just actually showed a graphic on the screen of the five demands of the protesters. We know that obviously uh, Carrie Lam ended up, after months of pressure, withdrawing that controversial extradition bill. But what would you say was the most, out of the remaining four, the most important demands that the protesters have from this point forward? Actually, the most important demand is justice. You know, when they unleash the police out and beating up people uh, indiscriminately and shooting at uh, the young protester uh, with very much of a use of excessive force, the people are asking, where's the justice? So we have always been demanding that there should be an independent uh, committee of inquiry and those who are responsible uh, for the uh, excessive forces and brutality against the protester, you know, they are, you know, uh, uh, say, you know talks about ra- gang rape, uh, they are, of course, already shooting. And all this hor- hor- horrendous, horrendous uh, act on the protester. You know, where's the justice? You know, we have been asking for independent committee of inquiry since the day one. But there are no yeah. response from the government and they don't want and, the response to calm and, down the situation. And that's the problem. Lee, Lee how, how are these ongoing demonstrations, sometimes extremely violent, actually affecting just economically the lives of ordinary citizens in Hong Kong. We know that you know, some companies have deferred long-term business decisions like hiring, like investment, that sort of thing. We've seen stores that have been closed for weeks at a time because of these protests. But how, how have these protests actually affected um, people on an individual level economically? 
Of course, you know, uh, economically, individuals, uh, workers are now facing maybe a, a wave of uh, layoff uh, that will be coming. You know, but the problem now is, you know, uh, people feel that the anger, they want justice and more than anything else. And unless there's justice, the thing, the, the situation will not calm down. And then when you look at the protester, you know, they have a saying which is uh, very uh, characteristic of the whole movement is that uh, we will burn, you will burn with us. Why are they saying that? Because they don't feel uh, that they are really sharing in this uh, yeah. Hong Kong economic growth or prosperity. They are always in the bottom. So uh, they want to change, they want freedom, they want uh, uh, no intervention from China, real respect of one country, two system. And so they feel that they have nothing to lose. And that exactly is the problem. That whole, the whole political and economic injustice is there in Hong Kong and the people really want to have a change. Lee. And maybe individual Lee. in the process will have a, a, an employment problem, but they will think that we want a long-term solution. And, and Lee, and, unfortunately, and we have to leave it there. Lee, I'm running out of time, though, but it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, like it or not, Instagram is hiding one of its most popular features. All the details in just a minute. All right, welcome back to First Move. Let's take another quick check of the markets. The Dow is inching a little bit higher now. It is once again in record territory. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are up about a quarter of 1%. The Nasdaq is also on track for a record close as well. Here's today's boardroom brief. Instagram is saying farewell to likes. Well, some of them as it tests out an option to hide likes for selected users across America. It's something that we've already uh, tried out in seven other countries to give us a better picture of what's going on. Let's bring in Hadass Gold. Uh, so Hadass, are likes toxic? Well, Instagram is testing out this new feature. This comes after there have been several criticisms of how social media, specifically Instagram, affects people's mental health, especially young people. So this is how this is going to work. Beginning this week, some users in the United States will start to see that their likes are going to be hidden from public view. Now, if you are affected, you will get a message on your Instagram. Now, you'll still be able to see how many likes you yourself got, but the public-facing part of your Instagram account, they will not be able to see how many likes there are. They might see that some of their friends have liked the post, but the total number will not be. Now, some critics are saying this doesn't solve everything. Now, this has been tested out in certain countries like Canada and Ireland and Australia. But critics are saying that some of the most toxic aspects of social media and Instagram are actually, A, the posts themselves are portraying these sort of perfect lives that don't actually exist, but then also the comments. And that's where we're seeing some of the criticism, especially coming from people like celebrities, uh, rapper Cardi B saying that she doesn't agree with this, that she thinks that most of the toxic culture on Instagram actually comes from the comment section. Other celebrities like Kim Kardashian West and Tracy Ellis Ross say that this is a positive development. Of course, there's also a business impact by hiding these likes as well, because as we all know, the influencer uh, arena of Instagram uh, is huge business. And a lot of influencers are selling their ads and sponsored contents based off of the number of followers they have. And of course, the number of likes they have and some influencers are worried that if you're not going to be see, see the number of likes that they have, it's somehow going to change the algorithm and it's going to change their business of getting people to sponsor them to run ads on their Instagram. Now, 
Of course, this isn't only coming from public pressure. Part of the reason that Instagram and other social media companies are starting to do this move towards doing things they think will help uh, users' mental health and well-being is because there's also pressure from governments. Here in the United Kingdom, there is a proposal to make it a law that will hold social media executives themselves personally accountable for any harm that may come from their platform, Zane. All right, uh, Hadass Gold, thank you so much. And actually, I caught up with Instagram's co-founder, Mike Krieger, in the Paddock Club at the U.S. Grand Prix. Krieger is no longer at Instagram, but said phasing out likes was actually a good thing for the platform. Take this. One of the things we talked about the most and worked on the most internally, even before our departure, was well-being. And so I think this fits into that same sort of, uh, sort of character. But you have to ask yourself, like, what is Instagram for? Like, ideally, it's for sharing stuff you're excited about and connecting with people over it. And I think over time, like the you know the likes were at first an easy way of saying like, cool, like thanks for sharing that. You know, like I'm glad you saw it. I'm glad you're experiencing that. And I think over time it became like a number that people compare against. So I think it's interesting. Um, I'd be excited for them to roll it out. I think that's probably a, a positive step for the for the feed. I think that's also why stories worked pretty well or really well, which was you know you don't have public metrics at all on stories like you're there and you're experiencing it and you're not like how many people saw this and we don't explicitly chose not to do likes for stories um so yeah i think it's a positive move within that sort of frame of well-being and today with cnn all eyes will be on the economic club of new york president trump is going to be delivering a speech on the economy uh, in about two hours or so from now investors hope to hear a little bit more on u.s china trade talks as well as the president's decision on European auto tariffs. And a quick programming reminder for tomorrow, the House impeachment hearings begin in Washington. Top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, and Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department, George Kent, will both go before live cameras and testify together publicly. CNN special coverage will begin at 8 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. That's 1 p.m. in the afternoon if you're in London. Uh, be sure to tune in to CNN for extensive live coverage throughout the day. That's it, my friends. You have been watching First Move. I'm Zane Asher. Uh, Connect the World starts after this short break. Enjoy your day. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.